0: Welcome to Mariner's Church Weekend Message Podcast, inspiring people to follow Jesus and fearlessly change the world. Discover your purpose and get connected by visiting marinerschurch.org or click the link in the show notes.
1: I was a pastor at Mariner's for 35 years. And a little over five years ago, Lori and I, as we prayed, determined it was time to make a transition. And so we did. And we told you back then that the reason was that we had 11 grandkids and Lori was saying it's time to spend time with the grandkids and we've been doing that. And then also one of the things that I felt and Lori felt called to was really inspiring and working with and encouraging the next generation of leaders. There's very few people who wanna know what I know, and most of them are pastors, and I wanted to spend time encouraging them, loving them, talking to them about the grace of God, the beauty of the church, the genius, of the church. And I thought that's how I was going to spend my time. And I've got to do some of that. But surprisingly, when most people call, it isn't for that reason. They call up because their church is in crisis or there's a problem, uh, there's difficulty and division. And so I step in and I do not necessarily what I thought I was going to do, but what is necessary to do at that moment. This is exactly what Jude is saying as he writes these words in his book. Look at what it says in Jude verses three and four. Dear friends, although I was eager to write about the salvation that we share. So he wanted to talk about God's grace. He said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all, for some people who were designated for judgment long ago have come in by stealth and they are ungodly and they're turning the grace of our God into sensuality. They're denying Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord. Jude here writes, Jude, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who had a unique perspective of Jesus, who is now writing a book to Christians. And he's saying, the problem is, is that we've been infiltrated by false teachers. These influencers, people who saw themselves as experts and they wanted to be listened to, and they're coming in. And so Jude, I mean, he confronts them and he says, he tells us who they are what their message is, and then ultimately what's going to happen to them. He says, look at what he says about who they are in this passage. He says, they're ungodly or godless. They are against God. They are deceitful. They're, they're liars. They come in and they are false teachers. They're immoral. We'll talk more about that. And then also they are condemned. And then look at what their message is. Jude just goes straight to it. He says, they're ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality, two sides of that. First, they distort the message of God's grace. Now, God's grace is central to understanding the Bible. And one of the things that I love most about our pastor, Eric, is that he is so clear about God's grace. And you know what God's grace is? God's grace is the truth that when God created the world, everything was right, it was perfect. We lived in loving relationship with God and with each other and even ourselves but we didn't like it that way, we wanted to be in control. And so when we decided to rebel against God, we damaged everything. We damaged our relationship with God, we damaged our relationship with each other and even ourselves. And as a result of it, what we see in our broken world today is because of our sin, the corruption, the oppression, the jealousy, the hatred, the wars, the racism, the sexism, all of these things are a result of us rebelling against God We could never be the people that we wanted to be, but God in his grace loved us too much to leave us that way. So God in his grace came to this world 2000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And he knew the only way that he could save us is to allow the sin that was destroying us to infect him. And he took that sin and he went to the cross and he died in our place. So Jesus, because of his grace, didn't give us what we deserved, but he died the death that we were already dying to give us forgiveness and life. He removed all of our guilt and shame. He makes us new. He makes us righteous. And so we have new desires because of his grace. We have power for life. And so because of that, because of God's grace, do we have to worry about sin anymore? No, Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, So we don't have to worry about sin. Does our sin show God's great grace in that He forgives our sins? Absolutely, when we sin, it shows God's great grace. Does God love to forgive? Absolutely, He loves to forgive. All of that's true, but then right at this point is where the false teachers would go a step too far. So they'd say, You don't have to worry about sin, true. God loves to forgive, that's true. Sin gives God an opportunity to forgive, that's true. And so he says, so we're free to sin. And there it is, there's the error. You're not free to sin, we are free from sin. Look at what it says in Romans 6. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we still continue in it? Paul in this passage says that we were enslaved by sin, but when Jesus came and died because of his grace, he has freed us from sin. So we're we're not free to sin, we're free from sin. And we wouldn't wanna sin because sin always hurts. Even though there's forgiveness, there's always consequences. And so there's pain and sadness. Sin hurts us and it hurts the people that we love. And so the first error is that they distorted God's grace. And the second error is they distorted God's grace specifically when it came to sensuality or the word could be immorality or fantasy, the word we get the word pornography from or lust. So you could say, does it include? Yeah, it includes that. What about, yeah, it includes that too. All of those things in an immoral life. And basically what they said is if you have a desire, it's your destiny. God's giving you desires. Those desires are natural. And so if you have a desire, you should just fulfill it. Now, in the last series, Eric talked a lot about sexuality for three weeks. And so I'm not going to go into it again. He did a great job on that. You can go back and listen to that. But essentially what these teachers were teaching is wrong because they're saying that all desires are natural and good. And our desires, many of them are God-given, but they are not all good. And we know it because we even, we train our children, we restrict ourselves. For instance, you know, I have a desire there. I see people, some of my friends have really cool cars and I have a desire to have their car. I want their car. Well, I can't live and just fulfill that desire, go to their house and just steal their car. I have to live with that desire unfulfilled. Uh, you might have, uh, you know, when we get hurt, We have a desire in our hurt to repay that hurt. And so we we want to hurt another person. We want revenge and we want vengeance. But we expect others, we expect of ourselves not to live with that desire. I had a guy that came in one time, long time ago, and he was, their marriage was blowing apart, and he spent a lot of time trying to convince his wife that he had a desire for multiple partners, and so that should just be a part of their marriage. And she's like, You're no way. And so the whole idea, which Eric talked about in sexuality, is that God has put parameters around desires, boundaries. And so it says in Genesis, God created them male. And female for this reason. So God had a purpose of creating a complementary pair, male and female. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The purpose of sexuality or sex in marriage is to create the oneness in marriage. And then Jesus said, what God has brought together, let no one separate. So there should be fidelity, saying the, the boundaries. For sex is in the confines of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman in marriage and the purpose is for oneness. There's a boundary. So any desire outside of that is outside of the desire. But these false teachers were saying, no, God loves to forgive and you have a desire. It's your destiny. You should live any way that you want. But look at what it says in 1 Peter. Peter said, so you must live as God's obedient children. Do not slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. Our old, broken, sinful desires is what we've been saved from. And so these false teachers were teaching a false gospel, not the grace of God, they were distorting it. And then the second thing that they were doing is they were denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. And so these false teachers, they were modeling through their life and through their teaching that Jesus was a good teacher but he wasn't Lord. You remember last week when Eric contrasted Judas and Jude, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples in the upper room, he says, one of you are gonna betray me. Every disciple says not, Lord, I would never do that. Lord, I would never do that. But Judas said, Rabbi, teacher, I would never do it. And so while Judas saw Jesus as a teacher, just one of many teachers, but the rest of the disciples and what we are to see Jesus as, Jesus is the one way, the one door. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the one name that's given to us by which we are saved. And so Jesus is the exclusive savior of the world. And these false teachers were not teaching that Jesus was unique and he was the exclusive savior of the world. And as a result of it, Judas, Jude says, denying Jesus Christ, our only savior and master. And then he goes on and he says, and their judgment ultimately, is that they are gonna be judged. Look at what their future is. They are people who are designated for this judgment long ago. And so they are people who are going to ultimately be destroyed. And that's why it says in 2 Peter 3.3, it says, uh, most importantly, I wanna remind you in the last days that scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own, desires. And so we know ultimately that, uh, that false teachers are going to come and it's a part of life. And so they denied the authority of Jesus. So what are we to do? This is what I love. Look at what it says in verse three. And this is the central idea of the whole book of Jude. Scholars for 2000 years have said this is the center of the book. Here's the idea. Jude says, so I want you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So let's break this down because this is the most exciting part of the whole book. This opens up the book. First of all, the idea of content, which means to guard or protect. It's a powerful term. It's actually an athletic term. And it means to, we get our English word, agonize. So it is to struggle for, uh, to, for, to put in time and effort. So what are we to struggle for and to put in time and effort for the faith, the content of our faith, which is God's word, the words of Jesus, the words of the apostles, the words of prophets, uh, the prophets. And Jude says that it's the faith that was delivered once for all time. So God's word that is complete. Uh, it's, it's God said everything that we need to know. There's nothing that needs to be added to God's word. There's nothing that should be taken out. It's unchanged. It's unchangeable. It is fixed and it's authoritative. It is God's word and it was entrusted into God's holy people. And so Jude is saying that a holy God has now entrusted his holy people with his Holy word. And so we are entrusted. And so Jude is saying, now we are stewards. Back then in the first century, they were stewards of the faith. And now it's our turn to be stewards. We've been entrusted with the faith, with God's word which introduces us to who we are and to who God is. It tells us who Jesus is and that he's our savior. It is God's word that guides us and protects us. God's word that the Bible tells us is honey to our soul. It is the need, the truth that we need for the decisions of our life. It's what we need to live our life. It's what our family needs for their life. It's what our friends need. It's what the world needs. And so we need to be people who contend for God's truth. And so it's our turn. But now the question is, what does it mean to contend for the faith, practically in your life? Well, for 2000 years, Christians have essentially said from Jude and other parts of the Bible, there are three essential elements in a Christian's life that it takes to contend, Uh, three phases. And so it's what we believe, having right belief, it's having right behavior, Um, obedience, and then a loving lifestyle. It's just like the Super Bowl wasn't played that long ago and they had the playoffs. And every time a football coach was interviewed and they were asked, what's the secret to the game? They all had the exact same answer. Well, we've got to win in all three phases of the game. There's offense, what they had to do, defense, what we need to do, then in the special teams. And in the same way, to contend for the faith, to defend, to stand guard, to anguish for it, what it means for us as believers is that we need to fight or to win in these three essential areas, our beliefs, our behaviors, and in our love. So let's look at these three. This is what Jude is talking about. First, it's in right belief. We have to agonize, put in time and effort so that we have the right faith, that we understand the faith, the basic doctrines of the Bible, that we have a working knowledge of the Bible. And so it's easy, that's what we need to do. Now, the problem with it isn't, oh my gosh, I've gotta read the Bible. The problem is we have a problem with belief. Scientists and researchers, and I love this, have found, and we know it's true, it's very, very hard to change our beliefs. I mean, as people, we just don't change beliefs very easily. And the reason is, is because we have what they call a confirmation bias or a belief biased, which means we undervalue evidence that contradicts our belief, we overvalue evidence that confirms our beliefs, and it seems that we are hardwired uh, to feel good about not changing our beliefs. So if you just look at those three things, you know, we like our beliefs, we like listening to people who think like us, we don't like to listen to people who don't think like us, and we wanna just stand our ground. It's very hard to change your belief. And here's something I just want you to say to yourself right now. And it's true. For most of us, we are wrong a lot of the time. So think of it. We've got a problem. We don't like to change our beliefs and we are wrong a lot. And so you go, what's going to happen? And the reason we know it's true uh, that our beliefs become our identity is because we get defensive. When someone disagrees with us, We become defensive not because we're right and they're wrong or we're wrong and they're right. We get defensive simply because they disagree with us. And it shows that our beliefs have gotten all conflicted in our brains. And we know success in life is determined by our ability to change our mind, to learn and grow. And Jude in this passage is saying the secret to contending is that we need to learn, to change our beliefs, to grow and to learn God's word. So how is it that we change our beliefs? You're gonna love this because this shows how good God's grace is. Look at what it says in Romans 2. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Don't let the world shove you into its mold, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. What does God do when he comes into our life? He changes the way that we think. He transforms us. He does the very thing that we need to do. We've got to start with right beliefs. And how does he do it? As we spend time in God's word, God begins to shape and change our beliefs through the power of the Spirit. He actually renews our mind. As you sit and you listen to a message about God's Word, He changes and shapes your mind. You go to Rooted, you go to the deep dive classes that we have. All of these things where you're learning about the faith, God uses it to change your mind. But it's not only just knowing facts about orthodoxy or the doctrines of the Bible, it is actually knowing something and experiencing it to be true. There's two words in the Bible for know. One is just to know a fact, but the second one, which is used much more often in the Bible, is knowing, which means to experience it to be true. This year, we're in our church. We have a yearly read by James Packer, the book, Knowing God. And so every day we read sections out of that book. And what James Packer says almost every day, is it's not knowing about God that's important, that starts there, but to know God means that you experience it in relationship, you experience a truth about God to be true. So God wants us to know about his love and his kindness and his grace, but biblically what that means is he wants us to experience his love, to experience his grace, to experience his forgiveness. God doesn't want us just to know that Jesus is the savior of the world and he forgives sins. He wants us to experience Jesus to be our personal savior where we give him our sin and we experience his forgiveness, his grace and his love. The Bible talks about how God is a majestic God and he's a creator and he's powerful and he builds beauty into everything. And Psalm 19 talks about how we see God's grace and power in creation. But God doesn't want us just to know that God's a God of power and beauty, but he wants us to experience that in our lives. And so in Romans 8, it says that God works in everything. He works all the things. He works for good in our life. Everything in our life isn't good, but God, because he is a God of majesty and wonder and beauty, can take things, all the things in our life, and he can create beauty and wonder and power in our lives, he works for the good of those who are his children that love him. So that's what God does. He wants us to experience that to be true. He wants us to experience that he's a God who heals. He heals broken hearts. He heals wounds in our life, that he heals our souls, that he heals our bodies, that God is a healer. He wants us to know that he's a provider. He doesn't want us to, to know only truths about him. He wants us to experience those truths to be real. And when we do, look at this verse, this is what happens in our life. Ephesians four, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, But we, and we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. We become mature, we become strong. So the f- first question is, how are you doing in the area of belief? Do you have a good working knowledge of the faith? Do you spend time in God's word? Or do you need to go to a deep dive class or to root it? Or do you need to spend time reading the one year uh, Bible or, or the yearly read? Spending time where you understand the content of the faith, but it isn't just to know it, but it is to experience it as true. So what would it be for your life to take the next step in your life where you're saying, you know what? I am holding on. I have right belief. Then the second thing that he talks about in this passage, uh, or the second phase, it starts with right belief, and then it goes to right behavior. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And so, first of all, we have right belief, but now we have right behavior. We become the people. And this is really where the beauty of God's grace is shown in our life. And the most amazing truth in the Bible is this, that God takes the wonder of his grace and he implants it into our lives. And the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his truth, he expects people to see through the lives that we live. And it isn't that we have to be perfect because we can't be perfect. In fact, Perfect isn't even the most beautiful thing. And I know it because I see it illustrated on TV all the time. There's a TV show called The Voice where contestants come in, they're singers, and they, they sing. And if they're good, they're chosen to be on a certain team. And I think Blake Shelton is one captain and Kelly Clarkson's another, and there's others. And so they're chosen. And then not only are they on a team, but they begin to work on delivering songs and they bring in other great artists. And it's amazing to watch these artists because they are not just great singers, they are talented. These special guest artists that come in and you realize how well they know their craft. They know what they're doing. But what's interesting is there is one kind of singer that always loses and America never votes for. And this is what the judge will say to them and gives them a warning. They say, you sang that song perfectly. You hit all the right notes. You've got great tone, but you don't embody the song. You haven't made the song yours. You're not interpreting the song. You need to make the song yours. And ultimately they stand up, they sing, and America does not vote for them because the song isn't beautiful in their life. They sing the words, they hit the notes, but there isn't the beauty of the melody and the song through their life. And this is what ultimately God wants to do through every one of us. God takes his truth, the content of his truth, He gets us to experience it to be true in his life. And then he takes the beautiful melody of his grace and he works it through our lives. We adorn the beauty of God's truth and grace with the obedience of our life. And as a result of it, it is a masterpiece. And that's why it says in Ephesians 2, you are God's masterpiece. We are about creating beautiful art. We take the truth of God, he takes it into your life and it becomes a beautiful song as you sing your song. Not perfectly, I mean, it's got different, different, all sorts of different tones and hues to it because God's creating a unique song through you. And so we sing God's grace. And the most wonderful thing is that God keeps working on our life so that we can do it. Look at what it says in Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you first the desire. So God creates a desire to obey him so that we wanna live a beautiful life. And then he gives us the power to do the things that he wants us to do. And so God in his grace is building this masterpiece in our life. So the second question is, how are you doing in the second phase of what does it mean to really contend for the faith? Are you a person who, are you showing the beauty of God's grace through your life, the stories that you're telling? Is your life adorning God's grace because of the beauty of obedience in your life? There is nothing attractive about a person who can say it right, but they don't live according to God's word. It just confuses people and it's ugly. And so you have to have both of those phases. There has to be the right words, and then it has to be a beautiful melody that lived out. And then the third phase is a loving lifestyle. Jesus said in John 13, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple, is that you love one another. Love is the defining quality of a follower of Jesus. And really, that's how it works. When we have right belief, we experience God's truth in our life, and then we adorn it with the obedience of our life, it automatically turns into a loving lifestyle. And we are people who are marked by love. Look at what it says in 1 John 4. This is real love. Not that we loved God, didn't start with us, but started with him. He loved us and he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, surely we ought, now what do you think? He, well, we should love God, right? But that's not what he says. Surely we ought to love each other. It's natural when we're loved by God to love God, but he's saying, no, what we're to do is we are to love others. And a giant theme in the New Testament is this whole idea of loving of one anothering. You know, we are to one another, one another. So we are to honor one another, to uh, de- be devoted to one another, to not judge one another, but to accept one another, to carry one another's burdens. We're supposed to be patient with one another, kind and compassionate with one another, forgive one another, build each other up. All of these things, this is what's natural as a part of love. And when love defines us, this is what's so incredible. Jesus said, when he prayed in John 17 when we as followers love each other and are unified in that it says the world will know that Jesus was sent by God and that God loves them and i'll tell you if there's one thing i want people that i love that are far from god they don't know jesus to know is i want them to know that jesus was sent by god and that god loves them and the way the world experiences that is when we love each other that's what he says so When you look at the three, here's what you need to understand. It's not hard to do any one of them. It's not hard to do right beliefs, but you can't just make the Christian life be about believing a certain set of doctrines, because then you're just ticking off beliefs and say, believe that, believe that, believe that. That's not the Christian life, a sum of doctrines that you believe. And you can't just say, oh no, it's right behavior and reduce the Christian life to just a list of things that I do. If I do this, if I do that, if I do this, then I'm right. That's not what it is. What he's saying is, is that I've got to be a person who, has right beliefs, I adorn those beliefs with the beauty of a life of obedience, and as a result of that, I am a loving person. So, the way it's seen is when we go out into the world with the mentality of show and tell. Um, When my kids were young, especially in the early elementary school, The first day of school, first week of school, when they would all come back into school, one of the things the teachers would say is it's time for show and tell. And what that meant is that every student had to stand up in front of the class and they had to tell about their summer and they would bring something in that gave them the opportunity to show because a teacher understood if they had an object, if they had a story, they could show something and then they'd tell about it. Well, my sons were very shy, my wife, was very shy, she understood that was challenging. So what she would do is she would give them pictures. Every summer we would go to Texas and she would bring pictures, she'd give them pictures and they could show, because everyone knows a picture is worth, oh, that's right, a thousand words. And so they'd show a picture. So they'd show a picture like this and say, I go back to Texas and we stay there and those are all my cousins. And we jump off of docks. And then we have a swing that we swing off of. And then this year, You know, they might talk about and say, I have learned how to drive a boat. And so they would show how they drove a boat. Or one year, one son just talked about, he did bow and arrows all summer. All he did was bow and arrows. Or they would learn how to wakeboard. Or they would learn how to, uh, they would go on um, uh, tubes and they would tube. But every year they would talk about Wimberly pie, which is the best pie in the world. But it was easy for them to show a picture and they could tell a story about what happened to them this summer. And that's really what God does for us, is that God gives us pictures of his love and grace in our lives that we can show people and then tell them about. But they're word pictures. I have, a, I carry with me four pictures all the time. I'll just tell you one picture right now in my life. I have a friend whose name is Bob. This is an emotional Picture about God's love and his care for us. And Bob found out that he had he's a little bit older than I am, and he has pancreatic cancer, and it's killing him. So he had to go in and get it cut out, and then he had to get chemo. Bob is a very strong man. He's very proud. He knows Jesus, but all his life, he's been proud, strong, he's been pretty successful all of his life. But cancer was killing him. And the treatment for cancer absolutely destroyed him as he went into get the operation, get it cut out. And then ultimately chemo, it absolutely overwhelmed him. And he, it, it just took him out. And as I would sit and I would talk with him, I mean, first part of it is all of his beliefs got challenged and he had to re them up. And he, he would say, Kenton, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? Why doesn't God love me? Why didn't God protect me? What could I have done so that I didn't get that, get cancer? And I'd sit and talk to him and say, oh, Bob, you don't have cancer because you did something wrong. You don't have cancer because God didn't love you. The reason there's cancer in the world is that we live in a broken world. It is a result of when we rebelled against God, God said that we would die. And so it's a part of the death in the world today. And so that's part of why you have it. And while it's sad, it's not directed to any one issue in your life. And then at the same time he would go, but, you know, and he was, and so, you know, do I need to be afraid of death? And so we would talk a lot about just that this world is in our home and that he has a heavenly home and his heavenly home is a place where God is his father and ultimately grace. Grace will be the air that he breathes. And in heaven, there'll be no more sickness and disease. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more loss. In fact, everything that has been taken from you in this life, God will bring back to you. Ultimately, it is a place where heaven comes to earth and we experience God's good. You don't have to be afraid of it. And so in tears, we would talk about that. And then as we talked, one of the thing that was so fascinating is that all through it, no matter how dark and how painful his journey was, He had this powerful sense that God never let go of him, that God loved him, that he loved God. And in tears, he would say, God is so good. And I feel his presence. And I feel like he's walking with me and he's taking care of me and he is providing for me. And I carry that picture around and I share it anywhere I can because it is a beautiful picture of God's faithful love. And I have a picture or another that I get through my grandkids that just talks about God's incredible love for me. I have another story and picture that I carry about God's forgiveness because forgiveness is a financial term. And especially for these guys that don't come to church and are far from God, they end up talking about money a lot. And so I have a wonderful picture that I show them about forgiveness and I tell them about God's forgiveness in my life. I have another story about God's faithfulness and his guidance to me so that they get to see that God is a good God, good God who guides and protects. But the whole point is I carry all sorts of pictures that are word pictures so that I can show people who God is in my life That shows them the beliefs, but shows them my life and me trusting God. And so it is show and tell. That's our life. We get to go out and tell people about God's wonderful kindness and love, but we show them through our life. We adorn God's grace through the beauty and beauty of an obedient life. And then we love them. So how are you doing in these three phases? Because Jude says, we have to contend. We have to fight, guard, and agonize for this faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. And the way we do that is through right belief and right behavior and a loving lifestyle. And when we do that, it changes the world. Is that good or what? So God is good. Father, would you help us in our life every day to be reminded that that's the way we walk with you, We hold on to these great beliefs. We experience them to be true. We live lives that adorn the beauty of your grace by being obedient, and we live as your loved children, loving others. God, give us the grace and the power to be these kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Mariner's Weekend Message Podcast. To support the ministry of Mariners Church, you can click the link in the show notes or download the Mariners app at your favorite app store. If you've been navigating God's wisdom with us through this year's annual read and would like to hear personal reflections from pastors in your community, check out the Gospel Everyday podcast. Imagine feeding your heart, mind, and soul with the kind of practical wisdom that will change your life. If you haven't picked up the annual read yet, Visit MarinersChurch.org or download the Mariners app for more information on where to find it.